Hello, everybody. Welcome to Volts for June 3rd, 2022. Uh, Volts podcast. Chris Hayes on how his politics have changed since 2015. I am your host, David Roberts. I often reflect on a particular moment in the summer of 2015. It was not long after the Supreme Court made gay marriage legal across the nation in Obergefell versus Hodges, and America was in the middle of one of its regular fights over Confederate monuments and flags, which were being pulled down by progressives across the country. That afternoon, I ran across a cartoon, I think it was on Facebook, showing a Confederate flag being lowered and the LGBTQ flag being raised in its stead. Hot damn, I thought. Maybe we really do get it right eventually. I now think back on that moment as the peak of my belief in what you might call the Obama creed, which the nation's first black president repeated in one way or another in virtually every speech, that the essence of America is its continuous struggle toward the egalitarian ideals of its founding. Again and again, it delays and falls short and takes two steps back, but it never stops striving, improving bit by hard-fought bit. The arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. To a first approximation, everything that has happened since then has sucked. We fell into the ugly 2016 Democratic nomination fight, followed by the ugly presidential election, then four years of daily insults to dignity and compassion by Trump, then a plague that we bungled in countless ways and that has killed more than a million of us. And now the Supreme Court is systematically dismantling the pillars of the modern administrative state, while Biden and the Democrats fumble their way through a slow-motion catastrophe, setting up an openly seditious Republican Party to seize near-total power in the coming two elections. To put it mildly, these developments have been rough on the Obama creed at least for me and many people I know. Much of what Obama himself did was crushed or reversed by Trump, and Biden has barely begun rebuilding from the wreckage. More than that, America's reactionary minority seems ascendant, and its intentions are clear to follow Viktor Orban's lead in Hungary, to whittle democracy down until it's entirely hollow, one-party rule in all but name. It finds echoes in similar reactionary backlashes currently rising in nations across the globe. So is the project of America redeemable? Is white Christian patriarchy ready and willing to destroy the country before it gives up power? Is the arc of history bending or is it merely flailing back and forth with no larger purpose or pattern? Is modern, multiracial, multicultural democracy still a viable long-term project? To help ponder these weighty questions, I've turned to the inimitable Chris Hayes, who, as they say, needs no introduction. You've seen his shows on MSNBC. You've listened to his podcast. You've read his essays and books. You know that he is one of the leading liberal voices of our time. He is also a friend we are part of the same generation of journalists living through the same dumpster fires, seeing the same patterns, and our paths have crossed regularly over the years. I've also been on several of his shows. We go way back. 
I've always felt that Chris and I share similar political and intellectual instincts. One of the few people at the commanding heights of U.S. journalism and punditry about whom I can say that. So I'm very curious to hear how his political outlook has changed since that bright day in 2015, whether he still believes in the Obama creed and what he thinks is coming in America's near future. So with that uh, portentous windup, <laughs> let's bring him into the conversation. That was great. Uh, I <laughs> love that. That was I, f- I found that very moving. Oh, great. All right. Well, thanks for coming on Volts. I should say I'm a Volts reader, too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, appreciate it. We're talking during a very dark time. <laughs> dark. I mean, it's all shades of dark these days. It's particularly dark uh, in the wake of the latest child murder. Child murder, yes, child mass murder that we're all uh, going through the motions as we always do until that fades and something else horrible comes up in the news. But um, let's let's pull the lens back. I want to I want to do some big picture talking and then a little bit more close in, like proximate. Yeah, what's our proximate future talk? But let's start with the big picture. So I just want to start by asking you in the most general possible terms, if you think back to 2015, which I mark as sort of the last normal year, how has your political outlook changed? You know, I think of you as basically sort of, you know, a left liberal Scandinavian welfare state kind of guy. Yeah. Has any of that fundamentally changed or, or if not, what have, you know, have you changed your mind about any big things? How have you evolved since then? I think I'm more, yeah, I think my basic orientation, which is like a social Democrat, you know, a a Rawlsian liberal, uh, a mixed economy, freedom plus groceries uh, (laughs) adherent. That's a freedom plus groceries, a great quote from a New Deal congressman describing the New Deal, which has never been improved upon for basically social democratic mixed economy, you know, rule of law. Broadly, I'm a liberal, and I'll talk about that in a second because I actually think that I'm more that in a specific philosophical sense than I ever was before, actually. Huh. But yeah, that that hasn't really changed. The, the, but things have changed. So one, I do think I'm a little less... I don't know what I feel about progress. What I do feel with age and with now going through having been a sort of professional working journalist for 20 years now... Just like that there are reformist moments and reactionary moments and they kind of alternate and being able to recognize when you're in one, almost the way that like a athlete can recognize a defense. Right, <laughs> like, right. It's like, oh yeah, no, we're right now, like we're in a reactionary moment. I just know what a reactionary moment feels like because I've been through a bunch of them. And in some ways there's a little bit of some comfort I find in that because there's a little of this too shall pass about the nature of reactionary moments versus sort of reformist moments, radical moments even. I mean, I think there were moments in the Trump administration where were almost sort of revolutionary in some ways, a, a, a level of, of sort of radical thirst for and exuberant enthusiasm for, you know, taking on patriarchy and white supremacy that I'd never seen before in my life. I mean, the mm. the sort of both Me Too and and the Women's March and then the George Floyd protests. So I think I've gotten more, just like a little, uh, again, I think a little wizened or, or sanguine about the fact that like you go through different periods in the life of a society and a democracy. I also think things are more tangibly perilous than they've ever been. I think that's informed by actual hard facts <laughs> and like, it, like, it really is the case that January 6th hadn't ever happened before. It really mm-hmm. is the case that, like, one of the two parties is 
openly seditious or or contains a faction that's openly seditious. It really is the case that like we've pissed away 20 years that we could have been doing stuff on carbon and now are have a much tougher road ahead. It really is the case that whatever you want to call it, populist ethno-nationalism, 21st century sort of authoritarian models are on the rise and there's and there's democratic retreat in a lot of places in the world. My experience since 2015 has been sort of comprehensive 360 degree sort of disillusionment with, you know, it's one of those things like when you do yoga for years, you're like, oh, I didn't even know there were, I had muscles there. I was like, I, didn't even know I still had illusions. Right. And yet, and yet they're falling. So, but one of the things I want to talk about is history because, you know, uh, um, it, it's odd. I'm not sure why the timing worked out this way, but it seems like one of the things that's happened since then is a lot of people on sort of the broad left have been getting a little bit more interested in reconstruction and, and looking more closely into that period of American history right after the Civil War, which is, you know, not taught very well in schools. <laughs> I did not learn. <laughs> I did not get the full picture in small town Tennessee in, in the 1980s when I was learning history. But, you know, through the lens of that, and then looking more at American history, it's sort of come to me that it seems like American history is not so much reactionary moments followed by reformist moments as very brief reformist moments followed by long swaths of yeah. reactionary. Yeah, that's, that, you know, it's, yeah. not, it's not moment, <laughs> moment. Like if you throw a dart at a timeline, yeah. you're, the odds are you're going to hit a period of horrible reactionary backlash. Like well most, most of it is horrible reactionary backlash. What we learn about in school are these brief periods where the reactionary backlash somehow gets out over its skis or goes too far or causes some rupture. And then there's this sort of reformist burst, but really most of it is dark. So in that light, you know, like one of the things you often hear, there's a sort of like everybody calm down faction in the punditry. I know you're familiar with them. And one of the things people like that often say is, oh, you know, like think about the 60s and 70s. There were bombings in the cities and leaders being assassinated and blah, blah, blah. Or think back to like, you know, the 1910s or think back to the 1890s, you know, citing these periods of American history, which were genuinely awful and which things genuinely did seem to be falling apart. So, but you say flat out, it's as bad as it's ever been. So how do you think about those historical comparisons? That's a great question. So yeah, I would agree probably like in terms of like sheer years um, on the dartboard, you're probably right. I think I started reading, getting really into Reconstruction right after Trump's election and spent several years reading a ton, including the Du Bois classic on it. It's so infuriating. It's impossible to exaggerate how infuriating it is the deeper you get into the details. It's also like one of those things that, you know, you know, sometimes you read, like you encounter some text and you're like, it just feels like it could have been written yesterday. Like there's, there's just aspects of that, that you're just yes. like, holy crap. Like, wow, this doesn't feel like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like this does not feel like this got cracked out of some vault. <laughs> this feels... The dynamics, you know, change the rhetoric a little bit. The dynamics are so similar. Yeah, and I think the reason that's useful, I think re the reason I got into reconstruction, I think it's useful is, is just because it got covered up because it is so inimical to the view of progress, right? Because we mm -hmm. had a huge amount of progress and then this enormous backlash, right? So things move backwards. I always describe it as like the lost city of Atlantis of American <laughs> multiracial democracy <laughs> where like there was a civilization that got built and then just flooded and then like completely like everyone just floats on the surface and it's like wait a second yeah lost to history like, wait a second there was a majority black state legislature in south carolina in 1869 wait Wild. what Wild. <laughs> never been replicated before like we've never had a majority black legislature in any state since then so 
So I think, yes, I think that that is the reason a lot of people have gone to that, I think precisely because when you feel like history is being wrenched backwards or, or reactionary forces are ascendant, that's a real touchstone. And I think also, you know, your point about, I, you know, I have some sympathy to the Just Countdown Caucus insofar as, like, there were really tumultuous, there was tumultuous stuff going on in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. And yeah. I think the way that I squared the circle, and this comes back around in some ways to the, answering the first question, which when I is that the biggest change is appreciating the difficulty and preciousness of liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I just took it for granted. There's the old, you know, David Foster Wallace, who has a very famous graduation speech he gives uh, called This Is Water, which opens with him citing the old joke about the big fish that swims by the two younger fish and says to them, beautiful day, uh, boys, enjoy the water. And the big fish swims away and one, the little fish says to the other, what's the water? Yeah, right. And, you know, democracy is the water for us. Like, it's just like, oh, right. Yeah, this, that's how you, you know, we have a liberal democracy. And like, that's, there's like a court system, there's a rule of law, there's inalienable rights, there are means of redressing grievance through nonviolent adjudication of grievance and accountability. There is peaceful transition of power, peaceful transition of power, like all this stuff is just like, that's the water. And then all of a sudden it's not. Yeah. And that is the big thing for me, the understanding, the preciousness and the vulnerability of it and the real profound recency of it as a project, which is to say actual genuine multiracial democracy. I mean, you know, 1965, basically, right. when we get the Voting Rights Act is like when you can really plausibly start the clock on it. Yes. Younger than many living Americans. Younger than many living Americans. And I mean, younger than like my parents. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's also true around the world. I mean, you know, India starts the clock in, in 48 and, you know, Brazil, you know, starts the clock probably earlier, but then <laughs> has multiple military dictatorships and sort of, and it's, it's modern, you know, modern incarnation of like a durable liberal democracy is, you know, what, 40 years old, probably like think about Franco, Franco in Spain. That wasn't that long ago. No, not at all. And I think that also the other connection that that gives me, the other thing I think about is thinking about the generation that survived fascism and saw fascism and also Stalinism and, and authoritarianism in, in different stripes and the appreciation that gave them of how, how thin it was, how fragile, mm -hmm. and also that they had watched it collapse in on itself. I mean, that's the other thing I think that that experience, which is like the, you know, the fascists came to power in environments of quote unquote liberal democracy and, and elections. Yeah. Talking about hearing echoes, go back and read <laughs> about people living through that. And the sort of like, you know, it's the conservative moderates that didn't step in and restrain the extremists. It's the center leftists who were too comfortable and you know, didn't worry when they went after this group and that group. I mean, it's just all... It's the leftists who said, like, after Hitler, us, you know, like, that, like, yes. like the, the worse, the better. And, and you know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of blame to go around. And, but it's all happening again. I mean, it's all, like, mirror image happening again right now. And this is part of my despair is, like, yes, we had not just a generation of Americans who sort of lived through this kind of thing happening, but 
you know, all of modern history is full of this kind of thing happening and full of people, you know, like Hannah Arendt and on and on sort of doing these incredibly erudite deep dives into the mentality of it and the psychology of it and the sociology of it and really forensically laying out like here's what happens with presumably thinking as they were doing so. If we make it so super clear how this works, we'll recognize it next time. And, and yet we seem to be walking through the script beat by beat and knowing that we're living through the script doesn't seem to be helping at all. It yeah. doesn't seem to be slowing it well, down. And I wonder if that's partly, I do think that's a little bit of lived memory. Mm. You know, like the, I, I do think there's a relationship between the generation of people who experienced it firsthand dying out and what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, I had a conversation with Francis Fukuyama recently about this and he, he definitely thinks that. And we, we talked about that a little bit. I mean, it's disappointing that one generation is all it takes though, right? I mean, one generation is all it takes to forget this, totally, never forget. But, but don't you also feel, I mean, to me again, it comes back to like, if I take a step back and I say, it is a miracle for a society to self-organize and self-govern. Mm -hmm. And it's a miracle to do it at the kind of scale that the U.S. does it or Brazil or India, right? These are all massive, multiracial, complicated democracies with incredibly fraught politics. Like, if I take a step back and say, like, that's a kind of marvel and precious and worth fighting for, and then the fact that it is easy for it to come undone feels, you know, in a sort of almost biblical sense or a religious sense, it's like Moses with the tablets and the golden calf. It's like, it's just easier to worship <laughs> like uh, an icon. It, 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 is, it is pushing against a lot of normal human instincts and habits. Yes. And, and, and so it's like, you know, now this, this is, I think a little bit of intention with some other ideas that other, you know, that other people have that, you know, actually what we want to be is free and self-organizing. And I just read the David Graver Wengrow book uh, basically makes an argument that like, you know, the, the hierarchy and, and these social systems and these forms of sort of complex politics of domination are actually these kind of aren't necessary for complex systems and, and people have organized themselves in all kinds of fascinatingly like free and equitable ways, which is, which I found really a, a wonderful provocation and, and really interesting. So I don't want to like overly subscribe to this view that's like about the human nature that's really born of like a fairly small experience of politics. But that said, like it does strike me that it's hard. It's always going to be hard. And that if you appreciate that, then it feels less surprising that there's people constantly pulling on the threads, threatening to undo it. Yeah, I would even pull that point out a bit and make it uh, slightly broader. Like, I only, in retrospect, realize now that I sort of took democracy as the baseline, but also sort of took, you know, basic rationality, basic sort of empirically informed argument, basic decency, the basic baseline of moral equality among people, Obviously, I know we fail on all those things again and again, but I guess I just sort of assume that we all agree that those are the baselines, right? Like, that's what we want. That's the standard. And we err when we drift away from them. But now, like, as you say, I've sort of flipped around to viewing all those things, especially rationality, especially any sort of collective rationality as miraculous yes. ex, ex, exceptions to the rule, things that we can sometimes achieve if everything yes. goes just right, but not by any means the default. <laughs> I mean, to me, the ultimate example of this, right, was like the COVID experience where it was like the combination of like, we made this vaccine 
in 12 months and then people didn't want to take it. It was I just know. like the most perfect combination of right these. There. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wow, we are really, what an amazing thing we are, us humans. And then also like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Idiots. So let's talk about Trump. And I'm just curious, did you think Trump would win? And looking back on him winning, I'm talking about 2016, looking back on him winning, is the story you tell about him winning a story of large structural forces that made something like him inevitable, you know, sort of the 2008 financial crisis, the, the implications of that and, you know, offshoring and manufacturing, all these, all these stories we're familiar with, the sort of sorting, the big sorting by education level, you know, there's lots of structural factors you could point to. Or is the story you tell about him winning just like a bunch of random contingent shit happened to all line up and fall the wrong way? And it was just more or less an accident of history. I, I go back and forth both about which I believe and about which is more frightening. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> which one do you favor? Well, I was always, and I think the record would reflect this in our, our program. I mean, people would always ask me that's, I remember people that summer asking me after he'd sort of, you know, sealed up the nomination, can he win? And I would say anyone in this country who wins a major party nomination, and I mean like you, the person I'm talking to, anyone, starts at about 42% of the vote, 43% mm. of the vote. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a coin flip, basically. Like he's got, he's, I think he's got a 50-50-ish chance of winning, maybe a little less. But like, yes, of course he can win. Like <laughs> the major party nominee for president is absolutely can win. So it always seemed real to me and possible in a way that I always felt a little frustrated that was not recognized. Did you think you'd win the nomination though? Like where, where was your level of credulity about that? Yes, I did. I did. It was in after a little while, but when I sort of understood how the math was going to work, I did think he was going to win the nomination. Not in the beginning. I definitely did not in the beginning think. I definitely was not like, oh, well, he came down the escalator like this. <laughs> no, absolutely not. In terms of how I explain them, I mean, look, the w one thing I like to say is that like the definition of a catastrophe is that a lot of things have to go wrong to make it a catastrophe. So like if you read the, the Challenger launch decision book, which is a sort of autopsy of that, right? Like it's like there's a bunch of stuff concatenated together that produces it. And that's just necessarily the case for a catastrophe. It's true of like World War One, right? Mm -hmm. Like. And so I think of Trump as a catastrophe, and I think in the stuff that went wrong, there's two categories, which is the, like, accidents and then the bigger structural driving forces, like the sort of alienation of downwardly mobile white rural folks who felt increasingly removed from forms of sort of coastal liberal, multi-ethnic, multiracial culture. Mm -hmm. The material basis for that you know, the fact that like this sort of the social misery index of addiction and, you know, suicide, like the, the short, you know, so all of that stuff that people talk about when they talk about the kind of, you know, hillbilly elegy, Chris Arnade stuff, like there, I think there's real stuff there. And I think the, you know, I think the sort of backlash to, you know, multiracial democracy as embodied by the first black president, <laughs> it's like obviously an enormous part of it. I mean, I love the like, you know, the Michael Tesla research on this, who basically is like... He's the dying of whiteness guy? No, that's Jonathan um, Metzer. Michael Tesla is the... Um, you, you had him on your pod, though, didn't you, Michael yeah, Tesla? I, I remember he's being a, very struck by that episode. 
he does research on like race in Obama. And basically he goes back, he had a, he had a panel survey and basically what he's able to find was that like people with high levels of racial animus. Yeah. I remember now in his previous panel research were the best predictors of white voters that flip to Trump. Yes. He's the guy that showed grab any thread, pull it long enough and you end up back in race basically. Right. And so you could, you could basically predict people's ACA views based on their, their, their racial animus score. But one of the things that he, you know, one of the amazing findings of his research, really, one of the major takeaways is that like people are real checked out of politics and that like tens of millions of people didn't know which party was quote on the side of black people, basically yes, this is until the Barack Obama was elected. <laughs> That's truly the mind blower. That like, that basically was like, oh, wait a second. Like, and for years, like for decades, it's <laughs> been like, an apparent piece of knowledge that a lot of white voters were walking around with and that Barack Obama just is like, Oh, okay. Whoa. Now I, Oh, okay. I understand. And obviously when I, when I say on the side of black people, I'm like, that's a tongue in cheek reduction yeah, yeah, of, yeah, of, yeah. of the two party right. system. But I just mean like that, you know, obviously black voters vote for democratic candidates up and down the ballot in you know, the 80, 90% range, but also like sort of in the sort of demographic cleavage of the two main coalitions that like black folks were in one of the two predominantly and that they had a, you know, there was, there was a responsiveness to their interests represented in that coalition was just not a known fact to a lot of white voters. Yeah. I, I feel like another trend of the last few years, at least for me is coming to appreciate more how much, political analysis, mine and others, is confound, has been confounded by and continues to be confounded by underestimating the near total ignorance Correct. Yes. of most voters. You have, been, you have written about this very, very eloquently, and it's something that you can sort of learn, but you have to just relearn it over and over again. You know what I mean? You yep. got to pound it into your head. Like They literally didn't know that most people didn't know that Democrats were basically the party of civil rights. Like that's just like hard to absorb for someone like us. So let me ask you a related question, similarly broad, and probably the answers are somewhat related, but this I feel like is the sort of central bafflement of our time, at least for, you know, uh, liberals. So there's sort of two stories you can tell about kind of American politics since 2015. On one hand, you know, you have the sort of political scientists saying, despite all the theatrics and the hue and cry and the sort of social media heat and et cetera, et cetera, basically things are going roughly how you would predict they would go based on the fundamentals, right? Like, so, you know, like Trump's victory and his uh, approval rating and all that were more or less what you'd expect from a generic Republican president in the same circumstances and, and, and vice versa. So, you know, and you would, you would sort of predict his loss in 2020 and he did lose. And then, you know, the fundamentals would predict that Joe Biden would be unpopular based on inflation and everything else. So on one sense, you could just tell a story of the last five or six years of American politics that are like, there's this it's producing a lot more heat and, and insanity and, 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 you know, social media hand-wringing, but basically things are more or less unfolding normally, as you would expect. And then the other story is that the Republican Party is going crazy, <laughs> you know, yes. just very visibly crazy right in front of us yes. progressively yes. as time goes yes. on. Like I like, like you're literally, it's like watching someone degenerate like in front of yes. you. <laughs> like, yes. And I feel like I'm losing my mind. Like how can this continue to go on and not 
matter? What level of it would matter? Why? Why? So it's like, on the one hand, you're like the fundamentals. Yes. Predictable, normal. On the other hand, why are things still normal when one party is so clearly and visibly going off the deep end, accelerating off the deep end? How do we reconcile these two? I mean, I was just having this thought today because I was watching Herschel Walker, who basically is, he's now the nominee for Republican Senate seat in Georgia because he was anointed by Trump. He doesn't live in Georgia. He went to the University of Georgia, quite famously, where he was an incredible running back and went on to have a very good pro career, but he lives in Dallas. And, you know, people have been talking for a while about like the whispers, you know, the Republicans are like, he's not a very good candidate. And, and, but he hasn't done much media. And I thought the reason for that was like, you know, he pointed a loaded gun at an ex-wife and said he's going to blow her fucking brains out. Like he, you know, there are multiple accusations of domestic violence um, that he has acknowledged. I don't think he denies them. He's, you know, says he's sort of a changed man and found God, et cetera. But I didn't quite like, I just listened to an interview with him and I was just like, is this a bit? I know. Like very obviously this person should not be a U.S. Senator. And I mean, I feel that way about like Tommy Tuberville too. Who Like, like is literally like, if you were a middle manager at like a, <laughs> like a shoe dealership, you would not hire those I mean, people. I don't know if you've heard Tommy Tuberville, but it's like, it's like ludicrous. It's like a, it's like an SNL joke. It's like this. And I don't like, there's other people I don't feel that way around. Like, I don't feel that way about like Tim Scott. I don't feel that way about Mike Lee. I don't, you know, there's people who's like, yeah, that, 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 I mean, I don't like that person. I don't like their politics. And the reason I bring this up is because like, it's a perfect test case right now of this battle between what I call normal politics and abnormal politics. And I'm always talking about this show, the two tracks, right? Because we have the track of normal politics, which is like Democrats control both houses of Congress and the White House. Inflation is 8%. Like, they're going to get their butts kicked. Like, right. it, And that's, again, that's democracy. Like, I don't like it. It's bad, but right, it's like, right. that is normal politics. Like, you know, Republicans holding a grandstanding press conference to be like, the price of milk is too high. Yeah. Any <laughs> yeah. democracy on earth, that is what the out-of-power party is going to do when inflation's 8%. That's a, the, the most bread and butter normal thing in the world. Meanwhile, like, there's an ex-president stalking around, like, trying to get pro-coup insurrectionists, including a guy who bust people to January 6th, who is now the Republican nominee in Pennsylvania. Running on a promise to send his state's votes to Trump no matter what. Yes, exactly. To never let a Democrat win the electors <laughs> of the state of Pennsylvania. And it's like... So I totally feel the same way about the weird, and and I think the, the what what it comes down to is this: voters don't actually. Again, when we talk voters, we're talking about a hundred million people. We're talking about people with all kinds of different things they're thinking about and dealing with. There is no within, the, and this is, I think, the thing that Hannah Arendt and the generation that saw the rise of fascism learned, and we have to relearn. There is no penalty in normal democratic politics for anti-democratic forces. Yeah. Which is to say, you cannot win elections by saying those people are authoritarian fascists because people will vote on the price of milk. And that underscores how precious and dangerous this stuff is precisely because within the confines of the battle over people's votes, there is very little penalty for being essentially illiberal, authoritarian, or, or fascist. Yes. Another way of saying that is you probably couldn't get the Bill of Rights through a popular referendum, right? Like you probably couldn't get democracy itself through a popular referendum. People want their team to win, basically, yeah. much, much more than they feel 
any fealty toward these sort of abstract third party rules that are supposed to govern everybody. Yes. And again, like keep in mind that like the only reason we have, you know, the, the second founding of this country and the key to the democracy we have now, which is essentially the 14th Amendment, came at the point of a gun. It was over the yeah. bodies of 600,000 dead Americans. And because the South's representatives weren't seated in Congress, <laughs> like we only have it because they were under literal military occupation <laughs> and didn't get votes and had to ratify it to get readmitted to the union. Yeah. And the 14th amendment is basically the linchpin of what modern liberal democracy in America looks like. It the, the 14th amendment which incorporates the bill of rights into state governments which hadn't happened before which has the equal protection clause like all of the stuff that that we think of as being like in a free society which is really at a real level protected by the 14th amendment much more than the bill of rights which again is only congress right congress will make no law congress will make a law right that itself didn't come about in any like democratic way it came about yeah. through mass <laughs> violence like yeah. that's the yeah but it's not just anti-democratic stuff there's book banning and book burning and then just right. a general so, yes. a general sort of ugliness. And if I'm being honest with myself, you know, I'm a classic effete coastal liberal. Like I'm all the stereotypes. You need, dude, I've been telling you this forever. You got to play up your like Tennessee bona fides more. I know. I got to, I got to drop that. I got to mention gotta that You got to constantly just be like, look, I'm just a simple gun over from Tennessee. As a small business owner. You're a small big, you're originally a from Tennessee. You're a white man from Tennessee who's a small business owner. You're I basically know. a MAGA dude. I know why. What, what's wrong with me? But I will say, like personally, it's not just that I find all this stuff. You know, the violence and the obvious love of violence and the very theatrical sort of, to me, almost like parodic sort of sweatiness about masculinity and all of it is not just morally repugnant to me, but aesthetically yes, yes. Repellent, <laughs> repellent on almost every conceivable <laughs> metric. Like, like you said before, like everything's lining up into these one big side versus one big other side and everything I hate and loathe and find repulsive on both aesthetic and moral grounds is all coming together in one. And, and which leaves me again and again thinking, why is my repugnance at this? which I find so fundamental and so and visceral. like pre-conscious yes, more exactly. than I could explain. I couldn't even explain it. I couldn't even argue for it. It's, it's pre-conscious. Why is that so rare? Like what, what am I, <laughs> why are the rest of Americans <laughs> not repulsed by this? <laughs> but because they're, I know that's naive. I know it's a naive question, but I can't get around it. It keeps coming. You know, I would say a few things. On that. One is they do pay a penalty for being nuts. Like, Donald Trump lost the national vote to Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Then he lost it by 5 million votes. He was an incumbent one-term. There aren't a lot of one-term presidents. They normally yeah. win re-election. Right. Like, they do pay a penalty for it. They could have had a Republican president who is 20% less repellent and weird and <laughs> corrupt and probably won re-election. They also, like, they've lost, I mean, we count the Senate seats that they have lost over the last, from, like, Sue Loudon to Todd Akin, to Christine O'Donnell. They're, I mean, you know, Herschel Walker, like that should be a walk. They should win that mm, in a walk. Yeah. And it's going to be a tough race. Like I just watched that interview with Herschel Walker and was like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> like, And there's a lot of voters who are going to feel that way. So like they do pay a penalty. It's just not that big, but it is, at the, it's at the margin, you know, and it gets back yeah. to this like 45% problem. 
the other thing to think about is they are playing on a tilted playing field because of the way that a that states have been gerrymandered right, and the electoral right. college and the senate such that like they can lose the total national popular vote and win the house they can lose the total national popular vote and win a big part of the senate they can lose the total national popular vote and win so when you combine those things you know they have an advantage already and they're already like pissing away some of that with the insanity but fundamentally the structural factors are what produce 90 percent of the outcomes and then the last 10 percent is everything else that they can go very far with that 90 percent even if they, <laughs> they give away the 10 percent and then the the final thing i would just say is that like i mean you're sort of somewhat tongue-in-cheek when you talk about the repellents but it's like there are like i say like there's aspects of liberal culture that i find aesthetically repellent and like yeah there's lots of sure. cr- cringy in this house we believe uh, I mean, there like, are aspects of virtually every <laughs> other human being <laughs> totally and I, and i think that that you know i think a lot of people feel that way about you know like preachy cosmopolitan liberals and like yeah. they, you know and it feels so there are times where i could subjectively access there's certain things it's funny like there really are differences. Like there are certain issues that I can like access subjectively and some I can't. Project yourself right. uh, uh, imaginatively into the position of the person who believes it. Right. But I agree that like fundamentally the penalty they are paying for being as wild as they are is really <laughs> insufficient. And I also think there's another aspect to this. And I this if people have watched my show or I've talked about this, so this may be like, and again, this makes me feel a little like, am I doing that thing that people do as they age or like when I was younger? But <laughs> I feel like when you would call someone, if you would use the adjective like he's very political or he's like a politician or even diplomatic, right? It all had a pretty similar cluster of meaning, which is a person who's just trying to be inoffensive and like right. liked by as <laughs> right. many people as possible. <laughs> right. Because the basic math of either diplomacy or politics is to not offend and turn people off. And it's very bizarre that the personality of a shock jock, which is the opposite, which is like the troll who like tries to stir up controversy, is now the personality of a lot of politicians. Everything else has fallen away on the right. That's the it's only, weird. It's like that is the only route. I mean, and, performing being an asshole to people. It's like <laughs> Rob, like just the difference between Rob Portman and JD Vance. A perfect example of this. Yeah. Like Rob Portman's just like a bloodless, inoffensive white dude who like has terrible politics but is not like going out his way to offend people and jd vance is like alec baldwin just shot and killed someone like jack you gotta let trump back on twitter and it's like what are you doing or or marjorie taylor green like you know just to take another example like literally the only thing there is about her to recommend her to even republican voters is that she will say the grossest nastiest most offensive thing that's it she's got there's no record there's no policy proposals there's nothing else but that, that is the sole desideratum now on that side. It's wild. Yeah. And I think, again, I think that like, well, that relates to something that I'm writing a book about, but I, I do think that there's the, the attentional incentives have gone pretty haywire and, and have, have wreaked havoc with our politics. Uh, well, let me ask about that because this is the, the natural follow up here is if you're talking about the sort of gap between the sort of theatrically repugnant behavior of Republicans and the weird normalcy of public reaction and public opinion, um, you have to look at the media. I think that's what comes up is the media. And, and you know, the, we could easily do a whole podcast about, about media and what's happened to it and, and how much it is to blame for all this, but sort of 
you know, this is another thing that has changed markedly, I think, since we started out. Like, I, my distinct memory of the George W. Bush years was there's this sort of normal political world and normal political media, and then over here on the periphery, kind of like a weird buzzing horsefly, is this right-wing swamp media with its crazy conspiracy theories. And, you know, like they were just as crazy back then over there on their margins. You know, you remember the Jade Helm, like Obama's going to take over the U.S. and declare martial law, just endless one after the other. And I sort of ended up kind of taking that as my baseline model. Like you've got media and then you've got this weird peripheral thing and just very, very steadily step by step, piece by piece, as we've watched over the years, that peripheral crazy has eaten the right-wing media entirely. And so now the media and the, and that machine has grown and has been measurably strengthened by social media too, of course. So now we have this weird situation where the sort of 800 pound gorilla in the media room is explicit right-wing propaganda. And then this husk of the mainstream media that's left, which seems entirely defensive, entirely not up to the task of pushing back. So how much do you blame the fucked up media situation for our state of affairs? I will say that I, I do think that what happened in the wake of 9-11 and we saw happen in the Bush years was the beginning of the right wing media swallowing, like moving towards this, like infiltrating the mainstream and dominating the things that we talked about. Um, I don't know. I feel really, I don't have a simple answer here. Here's two things I think. One is that everyone in the media underestimates how much power they have over people's attention. Everyone in the media thinks they're just chasing. Mm -hmm. And everyone outside the media overestimates how much power they have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think part of what produced Trump and part of what has produced our current situation is balkanization and attentional changes to the institutions of attention and the markets for attention. Right. This is your book, right? This is what you're writing a book about. Yeah, this is what I'm writing a book about. But I also think, I mean, again, like, let's go back, <laughs> like, for what, five or 600 years, like, all they did on the European continent was, like, murder each other over their, like, whether transubstantiation was happening or not. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, so... You know, you don't need, like, I mean, I'm, I, the joke I always make about disinformation is, like, they didn't have Facebook during the Salem Wish Trials. Like, it yeah. turns out humans are perfectly capable of passing false information, <laughs> dangerous false information in circles. False information is the baseline, and good, right, exactly. fact-based media is another one of these rare, effinescent miracles that yes. sometimes shimmers into view but can easily vanish you know, if not actively tended. Right. So I, I have a million, I have a million critiques. Than me. I do think that here, here's the one thing that I think is true. A thing that people don't understand about the media and media consumption in this country is that there's basically two large political coalitions. One of them, the center left, make up the audience for all of the media. <laughs> so everything that's out there, like from like, small lefty magazines, podcasts, blah, blah. That's all the center left. And then the other half of the country, it's like Fox, Fox, right-wing talk radio and some right-wing podcasts. But like, they don't read the Washington Post. They don't read the New York Times. They don't, increasingly, they don't watch the network evening news. Like, 
that whole universe that we call the media is basically, and even when we have these debates about cancel culture and what the media got wrong about the lab leak theory, those are all intra-coalitional debates yes. amongst one of the two major coalitions of people. And the other coalition really does just get propaganda. They've been setting it up. They've been working for that goal for, it for just decades. Is, and I cannot stress this enough how much it's propaganda. And I know this because I'm a practitioner. I know what it would look like for me to do propaganda. And I choose not to. So there is this really crazy thing that happens. And then to get back to now, here's the most fascinating, complicating part of this about how much the media is at fault. Here's the real black pill. Okay. <laughs> After the election, this was an amazing moment. After the election, by and large, in the weeks after, the position of Fox was that Trump had lost the election. Yeah. Famously called it to who was it that, that was calling Fox, trying to get him to take it back, but they called it that night. It was a very pivotal moment. Exactly. Yes. They called Arizona before anyone else. But what I'm saying is that even after that, like they did not go fully in on the ghost of Hugo Chavez uh, <laughs> hacked the Pennsylvania machines. <laughs> Or the Chinese, what was it? The Chinese, the bamboo paper. Yeah, we need, you got to get those, you get the UV lights so that you can see the Chinese bamboo, okay? And here's what happened. Fox's ratings tanked worse than they ever have. Yep. And for the first time ever, OAN started getting audience and beat, they even beat them for one hour. And we had, I see the ratings every day. I, I don't look at them every day like I used to, but... It was wild. Like it and you could just see it was direct. It was like people were just like, click, I don't want to hear you tell me Trump lost. Like, I'm gonna go to this place where they tell me that he won. And the, yeah, they, yeah. They've been trained. The audience has been trained. And then Fox realized what was happening and got much more. Now they never quite went fully because they have a legal department that understands <laughs> that they right. can't like they can't just like openly libel people. But they started doing a lot more of big lie stuff and flirting with it, and they got those people back. But that moment was like, that's where you see the dark agency of the audience. And there's no firebreak on that. There's no force or constituency left on the right with the power or the inclination to thrust itself into that process and try to even slow it down. It's, it's, it's less and less friction. The perfect example of this is like the career trajectory of David French, who is a completely doctrinaire conservative. Yeah. You know, pro-life, religious Christian low taxes, low regulation, whatever, name the issue. He also like believes in liberal democracy, th that the election was not stolen and that Donald Trump is like a moral monster as a person. These are just like all like just <laughs> to me completely obvious. Seems like they're obvious. Seems like it. And David French now writes for the Atlantic <laughs> because that's a place, that's the ecosystem in which we can have debates about this stuff. You know, no one can predict the future, but... I don't see anything on the horizon that would disrupt this basic dynamic. And I just wonder how far, like, you know, it's gone so much farther, so much faster than I predicted, even though I, like many net roots <laughs> types from the early 2000s, came online bitching about the media. Like, like, that's what I was doing from the second I started commenting on politics, all the same patterns, all the same dynamics. But even as a longtime media critic, I think I underestimated just how far and how fast it's going and it's just accelerating. So where does that end up? I mean, this is, you know, it's sort of like cliche at this point, but you can't really have a self-governing democracy without 
shared, trusted sources of information. And we don't have them. So is that it? Yeah. I mean, the key word there, and this is the thing that I think everything comes down to. So there's two, basically, I think there's two themes when you get down to the fundamentals of this. And I'm writing a book about one of them. And then the other one is what my first book about. But I'm writing a book about attention because I think attention is the most important resource of the 21st century and the way that people marshal it, attain it, achieve it, mine it from our minds, determines fortunes and mm-hmm. empires and everything. Okay. But the other is trust. And fundamentally, you can't run a low trust democracy. Right. Th- this is really what it comes down to. You can't run a low trust democracy. And it seems so much easier to degrade trust than it is to build it. So it just seems like on that front, democracy is constantly an uphill climb. And I think that's part of the reason that it's such an uphill climb. But I also think like we really got to think the trust problem. I mean, we really saw it. You know, there's all sorts of ways that you can measure this across countries, right? Um, like, do you think most people can be trusted most of the time? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. different, and you can ask it in a bunch of different languages and you can rank just how people feel about other people in their society. And like, we're a very low trust society. We're like near Russia. Russia is like a famously low trust society. <laughs> I, know. Like, I read a, uh, an article, uh, one of these sort of research roundups on this question of social trust and the sort of conclusion, as far as I can tell from the sociology world is a social trust is the coin of the realm yes. without which nothing else is possible. Nothing, no good media, no good politics, no good, you know, uh, policing, name your thing without social trust. It's all impossible. And B, what creates social trust? How do you preserve it? How do you revive it when it's flagging? No one knows. Like no one has a fucking clue. It's like the mystery juice that makes everything run, but no one knows really how it works or how to create it or how to stop it from leeching away, which is what seems to be happening. You see a theory of it amongst the Democratic Party leadership institutionalists, which Barack Obama was, Joe Biden, which is basically like, just keep willing the institutions to try to work. <laughs> I'm serious. That, that, yes. It's just, yes. That's the only way to, to soldier on and, and to recreate the social trust that's lost is you got to like just put your shoulder to the wheel and work through it. And it's like, again, I don't want to like dunk on it because like I don't necessarily have a better alternative. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I will say though, I will say though, the one perhaps maybe not an alternative to that, but a different strain that I found more hopeful was Warren's sort of approach during the, the 2016 primaries, which is to say the problem is lack of social trust and the way to create social trust is to create a government that works. So pay attention to who's staffing right. agencies, pay attention to how agencies work and who they report to, like the procedural mechanisms of building an administrative state as boring as they are that's the nuts and bolts of what will create trust is the thing working <laughs> right and and yet she couldn't get like the supposed pragmatists of the center left didn't care they have their catechism about austerity and all, all the rest they don't actually care about pragmatism and then the, on the far left they just want the beautiful results of socialism right <laughs> the, the medicare for all and everything else like no one cares about the mechanisms. The meetings. Lots of meetings. Lots of meetings. The meetings are where you live or die. Bureaucracy. There's paperwork. There's spreadsheets. There. I mean, like, yes. all of that stuff is like, what? Yes. And like, again. And she was the champion of that and got and it got her nowhere. Yeah. And I think that's partly because it, no one, that again is a hard thing to win on. <laughs> but again, <laughs> I like, know. you, I guess here's what I would say to conclude this about where my politics are. Like, I have never been more acutely aware and convinced that 
things are truly genuinely perilous and never less clear on the solutions. <laughs> and I don't mean I don't mean the solutions in a like you get to wave your wand and pass the agenda you want to walk then because like I think those solutions are actually like you know I think we should have single payer healthcare and I think we should like massively boost up our investment in clean energy and we should probably put a price on carbon that that's not going to be enough and we can you know there's a million different crash programs we should be doing to like there's a bunch of stuff that like if you said like okay you have a super majority in both parties and just you control it like I don't mean that I mean getting from where we are yes to something yes. is never been less clear to me like what that answer to and I find myself very frustrated with every single faction of the coalition from the most doctrinaire Marxist to the most milquetoast centrist. Well, everybody just seems to be reinforcing their priors. And I'm like, things sure seem different now. That's, like, I, I think, think that's sure part of it. Notably different, like some fresh thinking. That's it. That that's part of it. It always feels everyone is giving a now more than ever argument. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a second. A lot of shit has happened. Have we changed our mind on anything? Like I know. really now more than ever about all the I things. Know. And just imagine when Democrats get beat up in the midterms, which seems inevitable for a thousand different reasons. There is going to be a oh, festival everyone's of prior. Gonna, everyone's going to get to say like it was. The, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was too far left, not left enough. It was. We're running short on time, so I'm going to combine my last few questions into one <laughs> into one mega question, and and it's probably unanswerable. But I'm sort of curious about, in terms of our proximate situation, your outlook on the 2022 and 2024 elections. Things sure look bad to me, but maybe you <laughs> see something else. And then, sort of, the second part of that question is, if, as seems statistically likely at this point, Republicans romp in the midterms and then take the presidency in 2024 and thereby control all three branches of government and are thereby unleashed to pass all the voter restrictions they want and make it much more difficult for Democrats to ever get back into power. Well, A, how fatalistic are you about the upcoming two elections? And if you are as fatalistic as I am, how fatalistic are you about 2025 and forward? Like what, I guess at this point, do you have an optimistic story? I'm not fatalistic about 2024. I just don't think about it. It just seems too far and too much craziness. Like, I don't know. We're, we had a pandemic. We had the land war broke out in Europe, the largest <laughs> one since World War II. Like, who knows? I don't know. That's a long time away. Like, right. I, I just, I am really a serenity prayer kind of person, even though I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sober. Uh, but like, you know, what I can control, what I can't, the wisdom to know the difference. So I think they're going to, Democrats are likely to get walloped in 2022. Yeah. 1946 is probably, 1946 is a really interesting analog because I've been trying to think of a year that's similar. And like, you know, it's funny. You think of 1946, you'd think like people must've been pretty psyched. Like the war was over, like the boys come home and get to meet mm -hmm. little Billy. The sun is never met. And like, <laughs> And like they're, they're kissing the nurse in the Times Square, <laughs> we defeated fascism. But like 1946 was like a brutally dyspeptic year in American life. Huh. Inflation was through the roof. There wasn't enough housing for everyone that was returning. There was huge disruptions. Mm. There was massive racial strife as like basically the black people who had gone into the factories to work were like kicked out. And there was like factories that had been kind of like integrated under basically the wartime exigency being mm -hmm. recent. Like 
what there was in 1946 was the end of this era actually produced its own set of disruptions because normalcy did not snap back. Right. And a new era had to be born. And the way it showed up is that the Democrats got annihilated at the polls in the worst midterm <laughs> loss in years. And it was functionally the end of the New Deal. And in fact, the first thing they did was they passed Taft-Hartley over the veto of Truman, which rolled back the NLRB and, and was the, the first reactionary blow against social democracy that had been achieved on the New Deal was to uh, a frontal attack at the unions. But all of that said, like Truman improbably wins in 48, of course, famously, right? He, thank you on and, mm -hmm. and he ekes it out. Like a lot can change. So I'm not there yet on the fatalism of 2024 or what comes after. I think this election going to be bad. I do think the abortion matters. I do think they have an untenable position on abortion. I do think they have a problem with their own activists who are going to push for wildly unpopular shit. The second, and I do think that the vast majority of Americans think that forcing a 15 year old to give birth to her rapist child is insane. And that abortion illegal after six weeks is insane under any circumstances, that hunting down doctors for possible criminalization or banning plan B imports or whatever crazy shit they're going to come up with between June and November is nuts and bad and will hurt them and really will hurt them. Mm. And like, particularly in like these like gubernatorial races, like as Josh Shapiro, the AG in Pennsylvania, who's the Democratic nominee, said to me, like the Republican legislator of Pennsylvania will pass a total abortion ban that will come to the governor's office desk and it will either be vetoed by josh shapiro or signed by doug mastriano mm. it's it is not an abstract like women of pennsylvania <laughs> like <laughs> that's gonna be what's gonna happen so i do think that actually has a tremendous amount of salience and i also think it kind of reminds people who are cross-pressured or in the middle some of the things they like the least about the republican party that said, there's also like the human tragedy of it. So I don't want to like, I'm just focusing on the midterms here, but I sure. don't want it, anyone to come away thinking like, I think that's the most important thing. The most important thing is like women's bodily autonomy and their control of their own bodies and reproductive healthcare. So I don't know, but I think it's going to be bad. And I think the broader thing I would say is that the problem we have now is it's not tenable. You can't run a democracy in which you have to win every election. Otherwise, the other party, <laughs> when they get in power, is going to, like, destroy democracy. destroy democracy. Like, that's not... We can't play this as an iterative game. And that's why I do think, I like... Know. I honestly do think from a harm reduction standpoint, I think that, like, you, ha if you say that that is the most important thing, and to me it is now. I mean, climate is, but I don't think I would choose a climate-friendly dictator over a democracy <laughs> where we don't. Although, you know, it's an interesting choice. Um then you got to be serious about like, for me, it's like Brad Raffensperger's primary win was a big deal. You know, the Idaho governor beating his lieutenant governor, Brad Little beating Janet McGeehan. That was a big deal. I think like I will very much root for Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump in that primary. Really? Uh, who I think is like really uh, an odious, vile person, but I think is like several degrees closer to believing in the basic fundamental liberal democratic order than Donald Trump. That's so grim. Well, uh, just finally then to, to really conclude, you know, when I try to not be depressive and fatalistic, which is rare these days, but when I try not to, I can think of little things like that. But when I try to think of, you know, like if I just sort of like a, a politically disengaged, low information normie, you know, who's just living their life and just seeing these dire headlines occasionally and comes to me and says, it seems like things are falling apart. What is the long-term story you tell about how 
America pulls out of what feels like a nosedive, I no longer... Yeah, I don't have the story. I start hand-waving and talking philosophically, yeah, right, about the arc I mean. of history yeah, because I no. don't have a story. I don't have a... I don't got it. I, I agree with you on that, and I really don't have it, and I that's what I mean. Like, again, I could give you 10 bills to pass day one. You know what I mean? Like, sure, I, I can yeah. give you the... But I that the story from here to there is... I do believe it's unwritten, and I do have, like, hope and faith in it being unwritten and us being able to will it into being. But, like, what the steps of it are... Uh, are really, really unclear to me. All that I can sort of see, like at this point, the only optimistic story I see is the reactionary backlash overextending itself into some sort of flailing, massive harm that we then, you know what I mean? Sort of like things fall apart and then something's born out of the wreckage in some way. Like that's the best, that's the best I can do yeah. for optimism. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't see how you get around the falling apart stage, you know, from where I stand now. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't know. Well, this is not, this is not a great place to conclude our podcast. No, <laughs> but here, let me, let me, let me end on this note. Let me just say this. There's lots of things that I was certain of that didn't happen in other directions, which is like, I was quite sure they were going to repeal the ACA. Mm. Like, I really was. I was also quite sure that, like, Roy Moore was going to be an elected U.S. senator. Mm -hmm. And I was actually really skeptical the Democrats would win those Georgia seats. I mean, really, 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 really skeptical. Yeah, like, yeah me too. So it, politics does have the ability to surprise. And they have paid a price. Again, it's not enough of one, but they have like, it turns out nominating Roy Moore in Alabama is a bridge too far, even for Alabama. Now, Tommy Tuberville, who is just a ludicrous a bridge, figure. Just the right, just just the the right, right amount bridge. of bridge. It's just Tommy Tuberville is the perfect amount of bridge. Oh. Um, so I just, I guess I would say like, if there's anything, the the thing that I just come back to is like, I just have no certainty about the future and what will happen. And like, often that means that things far worse than I could have imagined happen. Like <laughs> a million people dying from an yes, it does seem like That's, that's the way things surprise us most often most lately, of the time. but sometimes they are surprising in the direction and like, who knows really, who knows? Yeah. This was, I wrote a, a column about when I was leaving uh, grist, I was writing these sort of valedictory columns. And one of the columns I wrote was about hope. Cause Anybody who writes about climate, everybody's constantly asking, like, are we screwed? Is there any hope? And, you know, I, and I sort of said, I came down basically exactly where you just did, which is, sure, if you look at any particular event or trend, it seems super bad. But then again, life is chaos. Yes, exactly. And, and anything could happen. And so that means good things could happen, too. Yeah. And like, I, it felt so utterly inadequate, but it really is. That's about all I got. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. I mean, we could, uh, um, it's difficult to step back under what feels like constant incoming fire. So uh, this was fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it was great. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.